0: Hello and welcome to the Tropical Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runsey. Our guest today is Dame Ritter, who is the founder and CEO of the Music Entrepreneur Club. This is a membership program for aspiring artists, producers, managers, label owners to come together on a number of different topics and settings. Each week they have a live weekly chat where an expert from the hip-hop community comes in. I've had the pleasure of joining one of these chats a few months back. And they also do something dope, which I really appreciate. They have a traveling tour where they go to a number of the markets that are underserved by the main hip-hop conferences and find the aspiring talent there. I'm also excited to have Dame on the podcast today because he has strong opinions on a number of topics. So let's get right into it. Dame, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, man. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate what you're doing for the community, kind of raising the level of quality of conversations that we're having. blessed and honored to be a part of this podcast today.
0: Appreciate it. First, we're going to dive into one of Dame's favorite topics, his boy, his guy, Kanye West.
1: Kanye, Kanye. What what do we need to talk about Kanye for today? What's what's going on, Dan?
0: So here's the thing. His Sunday services have been gaining quite a bit of traction ever since the beginning of this year. I've seen the videos. You've seen them too. The thing is, it's one of the more polarizing topics. And I know you have some very strong thoughts about this as well, following you on Twitter. So I'd love to get a sense. When you first saw that first conversation, Sunday service that he put out on social media, the beginning of this year, what was your first reaction?
1: To be honest with you, like, I, I believe, I, I don't know Kanye, but I believe Kanye need, needs help. You know, I've, I've been around mental illness a lot in, in my lifetime. Um, and it just seems like he, he needs help. Uh, I, just, I don't think he's well, the things he says, the things he does, and to just to make such a quick pivot from all the controversy with the MAGA hat and the slavery as a choice, and then a quick pivot into the Black church, it seems, again, I don't know him, so I don't know his true intentions, but it seems to be trying to repair the damage that he caused, right? Because what better cover to have than the Black church if Black people are angry at the things you're saying? Right. And it's just too quick of a pivot for me.
0: The pivot itself doesn't surprise me, but it's how quickly folks changed. I mean, on January 1st, Kanye made it very clear when he said, Trump's my guy. Don't get it twisted. And not too long after, he has the sermon behind him. He has the black church with him. And of course, in the community, the black church has always been a sign of repentance, a sign of forgiveness. And you make a switch like that, and all of a sudden, people are supposed to be like bought in. How do you make that strong of a pivot that quickly, just however many, six months or however long after it is? That's what's most surprising about this to me.
1: Yeah, same for me. And then, but six months—well, I don't know the exact number of months—prior to even all the maga stuff, the type of music that he was dropping, right? Like, so the feature with Lil Pump—you know—if you read those lyrics, they're not very godly, right? They're—they're they're very direct. Very, <laughs> um, you know, I don't even want to repeat them on your podcast. But go to go to Genius and look at the verse that he put on Lil Pump, and I believe that was only last year, right? And then we have the MAGA stuff, and slavery is a choice. And then a quick pivot into the black church, and every to each their own. If people feel like this is genuine, and he, you know, you can't judge anybody else's walk with God. I understand that, um, you know, and, and I know that the the and correct me if I'm wrong, but the the Sunday services you don't they don't charge you to get in in
0: in it, those. It's free to attend. Yeah,
1: it's free to attend those. But ultimately, there's a monetary play here. And that's the other thing that makes me uncomfortable. Like, obviously, he's going to be selling his music, he's going to be selling merchandise, I would imagine he's going to go on tour and sell a tour. So it's like, we're going to go from, you know, Lil Pump's verse and all the and it was more than just Lil Pump's verse, but then into the MAGA stuff, slavery is a choice straight into the church. And then we're going to his show. Like not for me, not everybody can make their own decision, but you know, I, I, I cut out Kanye a long time ago. Um, And I think for a lot of people, even I was looking at it wrong for a long time, right? Because Kanye for A lot of people was supposed to be like this different artist. Like he was supposed to be like impactful, revolutionary, because he came out with a lot of positive messages, and we thought he was going to be some. We didn't think that he was going to be the Kanye that he is today, right? We thought that he was going to be somebody that help the black community. It was going to be more of like a Kendrick, but it's not fair. I, I had to check myself because it's not fair for us to have expectations of who a person should be, right? Especially as just a fan of another artist, it's not fair for us to try to dictate somebody else's career. They're going to have their own journey. And I had to check myself. I can choose not to be a fan anymore, but it's not fair for me to have expectations on another person's growth.
0: And that's the interesting thing about this, because... After Hurricane Katrina, he had went up on the telethon and said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And George W. Bush still says that that was the lowest point of his presidency. But it was a statement that made him bigger than an artist. A lot of people looked at him like, yes, this is someone that we can look to to say the right thing when we are in troubling times. But you fast forward a few years later to 2012, 2013, during the Black Lives Matter movement, West was silent. We didn't truly hear much from him. And then all of a sudden, you fast forward to 2016, and We're in the middle of the St. Pablo tour, and he's talking about how he would have voted on Trump. But I guess the interesting thing about this is the factions of Kanye West's fan base. Because last year, during the slavery was a choice, Kanye in the Oval Office, all of that, Yeezy still became the top 10 highest selling sneaker. It makes me think that you clearly have a number of people he's clearly Attracted or won over with these statements, but maybe a larger portion of fans that either don't care or don't care enough not to get the latest sneakers. What do you think about that in regards to the Kanye West fan base?
1: Maybe we were just part of the minority of just, you know, because he came out at an interesting time. I think I was, so this was like, I was in London at the time when I saw him in concert, and this was, so that had to be like 2004, 2005. Um, and just that initial energy of somebody who we thought could be a champion for the people, I think we were probably just the minority, and just the majority is just people that don't care about that stuff. They just are are caring about what's cool, um, and are not looking for necessarily their artists to be a champion for the people. They just want, you know, a reflection of what's cool and they want to buy into that. Um, you know, so I think that even though a lot of black folks were probably looking for this guy to be kind of a champion for the people. Um, you know, we were quickly realized that the masses don't care and weren't looking for that. And right, a, right. A, a huge percentage of people that are just going to buy the stuff and show up at the shows. Um, and I think that's what Kanye eventually just catered towards.
0: Right. And it makes me think about the fan bases and how Artists have their different groups of people because I've been to several Kanye West concerts and it's mostly white people. But if you look on Twitter, most of the people that are controlling the narrative on Kanye being canceled, X, Y, and Z, are mostly black people. So it's easy to live in this world where you are convinced that Kanye is canceled, he's done, so on and so forth. But there is likely a larger number of people who aren't that passionate about it or they care but they still want to make sure that they're getting the latest sneaker drop on Saturday morning
1: it, exactly and it's and it's interesting because I used to run a label called funk volume and the flagship artist was was very controversial and it would have been difficult for me to run this run this label if it still existed today because I know that a lot of the fans that we had, are Trump supporters and I've seen, cause the label crashed and burned in like 2016. So it was like right at the point where, where Trump was starting to, to um, well, when he got elected. So um, our fan base was like typically in the Midwest, white. And I, and I, what I realized is that Hop got a lot of his fans cause in early days then some of the things that he would say for example, he had a song called Nocturnal Rainbows where he talks about like Obama being not being a savior. He said a lot of things that white people love to hear black people say. Right? Mm-hmm. And one one of his popular songs, it's Illmind 5, he literally says in it like how come black people got to be the only ones that can't evolve something something fighting and playing basketball. And I feel like white people who are the main consumers of hip-hop music they love to hear black people say stuff like that because it confirms what they think. Um, so drawing the parallel to Kanye, I feel like it only helps them when when black people say things that a lot of white people already believe, you know. But it would have been very difficult for me to run Funk Volume today during during Donald Trump's you know time in office because I'm not necessarily like silent on a lot of political things. I, mean, I I make my my opinions quite clear on like Facebook and, and, and Twitter. And I realize that a lot of the people that, that respond to that are former Funk volume fans. So I know where they stand and, and it's interesting and it's kind of sad to be honest.
0: Yeah. It's definitely one of the truer things that's happened with hip hop. As much as we talk about the growth that's happened in the past decade, we do have to be honest about where that growth comes from. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think this is given with any genre of music as things evolve. But when artists are used to making their music for a particular core audience, but then that core audience becomes you know much smaller than the broader audience, how do you adjust? Who do you speak to about that is definitely an interesting exercise. And it's also making me think about how you mentioned black artists that are making the type of music or saying the type of things that white audiences like to hear black people say about black people, because it makes me think about Kendrick Lamar in a lot of ways. And this isn't a conversation that we often have with Kendrick, but in uh, several of his lyrics, I'm thinking specifically about, uh, what's the album? Uh, to pimp a butterfly. And he has that one line in there where he's like, um, why did I weep when Trayvon Martin was in the streets when when game banking made me kill somebody blacker than me, hypocrite. That is respectability politics. And he has made those types of statements. But I don't know if that type of statement necessarily resonates with a broader audience the way that Kanye being in the Oval Office would.
1: Yeah, to be honest with you, like I, I, I like Kendrick, but I'm not I'm not I I respect Kendrick. I think he's a great artist, but I can't say that I listen to a lot of Kendrick Lamar music. Um, so I don't know exactly how he addresses all of these topics, um, but I know it's not as I would assume it's, it's not as direct. I mean, like you said, he slips it in there um, and there's things like that but i'm not sure if it's as as direct as the messaging as as kanye and plus kanye steps outside of his music to you know have discussions i don't feel like kendrick is is as accessible
0: no he's not i mean we saw him at the obama white house a couple times but that was about it uh back to kanye though do you think that he could ever get back to that stadium yay status where he's the top dog in hip-hop and everyone is looking to him? Or do you think that the Trump era has made that unlikely?
1: No, I mean, I think, I mean, he just would, what he just sell like, I mean, he just made 150 million. I mean, he was top of the Ford list. Like, I feel like he can get back to, I mean, especially with the platform that he has, right. And, and who, who he, he runs with. I mean, his wife has a ridiculous amount of influence. He has a ridiculous amount of influence. Um, you know, I, I would not be surprised. Um, a matter of fact, when this album comes out, I'm expecting people to fly. Just seeing the anticipation and the coverage that he gets with every move that he makes or every time he says it might be dropping then it's not dropping, then it might be dropping again. And like people are, are like on the edge of their sheets waiting for this album to drop. I think that he'll get back to being just as successful as as he's been.
0: Right. I think I agree, but I wasn't always sure because last year when Ye dropped, it didn't do as well. And I think it's for a few reasons. One, the album itself just wasn't as good, but also it got overshadowed by Pusha T's album, some of the other stuff that came out around that time frame. But since then, Kanye has said, Even worse things, and now everyone is glued to their seats with this Sunday service, and when Jesus is king is going to drop, or when it's not going to drop, oh, he's in Detroit for this, oh, he's in Queens this weekend, the deadline came and passed, now it's supposed to be this IMAX experience when this album does eventually drop, I think a lot of people are going to be asking themselves the same question, especially if it does well. Has Ye redeemed himself? Is he back? And honestly, things are already trending in that direction.
1: Yeah, no, I I think so. Um, I I mean, especially if he's successful in winning over the the Christian audience, um, which it seems like there's been a lot of tweets. Did you see the tweet that, I responded to, there was a young lady that posted about how she loved Kanye's message because it was so direct, um, and, and in his embrace of, of, of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Um, I, people have very short memories. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's going to come down to how the music sounds, um, if it's good and he's definitely a great artist and I don't expect the music to be bad, um, you know, I, I think he's going he's to be successful. He has a platform. We have short memories. And he's a very creative person in creating these different experiences. And being able to just evolve over time, I think that's a challenge that a lot of artists struggle with because, you know, they don't know how to continuously reinvent themselves to stay relevant. And that's where a lot of artists fail to stay relevant because they don't know how to um, reinvent themselves in a way that matters.
0: Yeah. And in many ways, as annoying and as problematic as Sunday service may be, it checks all the boxes from a strategy perspective. This is an artist that has disrupted their normal cycle and has brought fans together in a way that has everyone's attention.
1: Right. No, it's smart. I don't give people like Kanye as much credit as being like, a marketing genius as some people claim that he is, or even his wife, Kim, like the marketing, because they have the resources to pretty much manifest any idea in their head.
0: Exactly. Right? They
1: can they can premiere something at in, in 50 cities on the same night um, around the world. You know, you can come up with any idea to, to but pretty much anything they do is going to be, is going to be monitored and, and, we're going to follow their every step. Every media outlet is going to follow their every step. So whether the plan was to put the lyrics on paper airplanes and send them around the world, like it doesn't matter what they do is going to be followed. So, you know, I give more credit to the independent artist that doesn't have much of a budget, but comes up with something creative and starts to get people talking. Um, you know, I'm not saying he's not good at marketing at all. He is, Um, But it's just a different situation when I'm when I see a lot of the, the independent artists that I work with do very creative things versus, you know, Kanye, who has an unlimited budget, unlimited amount of resources and already millions of eyeballs on him. It's easier to execute those things.
0: Right. The bar is fairly low when you have all the resources in the world and all that name recognition. It's much more impressive if you can do the same with an artist that is much lesser known or you have much less resources to do it. And now that I think we got everything about Kanye West off our chest, I think it's a good time for us to transition and talk a little bit more about your career path to what you're doing now with music Entrepreneur Club. So you started your career at Goldman Sachs, and then you spent two years at Stanford Business School, and then you spent two years at Deloitte. It's a fairly standard path for someone that goes the business school route. But then you decide to go the entrepreneurial route and start a record label. So talk to me about that journey. I'm sure you must get the question a lot. I get the question as well about the music industry in general. So talk to me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of my a lot of my business school classmates are probably looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? Um, Because it's not a conventional route. You know, there's not very many people that have gone to business school that are in music at all. Um, But mine was just kind of by accident, kind of. I got laid off in 2008 when I was working with uh, Deloitte Consulting. So I was just kind of going back to the drawing board. I was like, okay, what do I want to do? I wasn't really excited about consulting. Um, So I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And it just so happened during that process, my little brother was going to UC Irvine at the time, and he was telling me he was frustrated with school. He wasn't really excited, giving it his all, and he wanted to drop out and do music. Um, So the timing just kind of happened to work out. And he had a friend of his Um, that was equally as frustrated but in a different situation as he was signed to Ruthless Records at the time. This is Hobson. Hobson and my brother went to high school together, and that's how they became became friends and started doing music together. So I met up with them. Hop had already had the idea that he wanted to do something on his own, but he was already signed to Ruthless Records. Um, So when we got together, we started what was going to be a record label, but we needed to get him out of his deal. So we kind of positioned it as kind of like a production company, marketing company. And at first I was just trying to help him, like um, basically trying to help him in his current situation because I think they just didn't know what to do with him. And then I was just trying to show him some research or where they should put him and things that they should do. Uh, Eventually got him out of his deal. We started our own label called Funk Volume. um, And we just hit social media hard. You know, from the outside looking in as a consultant, it's just obvious that, you know, the most thing that the thing that's most important is fans. So it's like, okay, we need fans. If we have fans, that will unlock the door to anything we want to do, whether it was tour, so merchandise, get blog coverage, all that. So we just focus heavily on interacting and engaging with fans on social media, continuously putting out content, leveraging every tool that, that we have access to, whether it was MySpace, Facebook, UStream, live stream, anything to interact and engage with fans, and eventually we just kind of built momentum. We we really clung to Facebook because I realized that that's where people were, and that's where people were, uh, that's where the most people were. So we even though there was some resistance to it at first because Facebook didn't look as cool as MySpace, we really made a home on Facebook and grew our fan base there. And as the fan base grew, things just started unlocking. We eventually, you know, went on our own tour. We booked our own tour. Just jump in a van and started, you know, driving around different cities and and doing shows. Uh, then we eventually got a booking agent, and eventually we signed artists, producers. Uh, we were traveling the world, and the guys were doing what they wanted to do. Um, so everything was going great. We had, you know, Hop was on the Double XL freshman cover. We actually had three artists in three years in a row have the Double XL freshman cover because we had Hop, Dizzy, and then Jaron Benton. Dope. Um, and then we eventually signed a label services deal with Warner in 2015, maybe end of 2014. Um, so things were definitely progressing. And then it came to a pretty embarrassing crash and burn in 2016 or the end of 2015. Um, Hops, not the most stable person, and, and and he's fairly controversial. Not the easiest to work with. Uh, I suggested he didn't work that hard, and then that's what just kind of started the beginning of the end essentially so it was a great experience man it's definitely a different experience than deloitte or goldman or wells fargo or anything i've ever done so it took a lot of adjustment you know going from the corporate world to the music world um right
0: What lessons do you think that you learned from the corporate world or from business school were applicable to launching Funk Volume and getting it off the ground versus what did you have to learn on the fly?
1: I just think the the structure and the organization, right? Like music is a very unstructured space. People are, are not as professional all the time. And I think maintaining that internally really helped us, you know, helped us with our operations. It helped us build build relationships with people. Um, I think when we interacted and, and communicated with people, they saw that we, you know, we, we were about our business, you know. Um, and I just think strategically, you know, thinking about things, thinking about social media and how we were moving, how we were managing our costs um, and doing things very cost effectively um, and, and growing the business, being very mindful of that. Um, I think all of that, that helped, you know, do I have to sit? Would I sit here and say you have to go to business school to start a label? No, not at all. Um, but but I definitely think it. I definitely think it helped. You know, just having that more structured experience, a more structured corporate experience. Um, you know, learning Excel and stuff like that, and and just managing stuff better internally was definitely helpful. The piece that I have to learn on the fly was just like dealing with artists and people that don't have that structure and never had that structure right a lot of these cats have never even had a nine to five um so it was hard for me to make that adjustment with people that aren't even used to like texting you back or getting on a call on time or having a meeting or anything like that um so that was very difficult it continues to be difficult (laughs) today um you know because that's just not me like I'm a very structured organized person and, and that's that's how I'm more most comfortable, um, but but yeah, and, and just running a label you're you're working with people, all different types of people, right? You have people that um you know, we might be talking to some brands, we might be talking to some labels, and that's that's more similar to like the corporate world, but in the morning you might be talking to one of your artists' family members or dealing with some drama, some issues on on that end, so your day. You know, you could be talking with family members and dealing with personal issues, or you could be talking to Warner about how you're going to structure the, the label services deal and then everything in between. So I think, you know, there's a huge range of experiences, whereas I think most corporate folks have an expectation of what they're going to deal with that day.
0: Right. It sounds like it's both an exercise in communication and interpersonal skills. I know one of the things they often talk about in the corporate world and in business school as well is how do you elevate the conversation for your audience? Communicating the same message to a CEO is very different than an individual contributor. And you're essentially doing an even more dramatic version of that. You're communicating to execs at Warner and then the same day talking to family members of an artist. And that's such a dramatic switch. Yeah.
1: It's, a, it's, it's, um it's interesting. I definitely think I've, I've grown and learned from it. Obviously I didn't do everything right or, or we possibly would still have, have a label, um, you know, but, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting experience. I learned a lot from it. Um, and I appreciated the time I spent doing that. Um. You know, because I think I learned a lot from it, and in, in, in what I'm doing now with the Music Entrepreneur Club and, and all the stuff that I'm doing now.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about the Music Entrepreneur Club. As you talked about before, this is a membership model subscription program. How did you determine that that was the best business model for you, and how has it been both getting the talent that you want to be able to? Provide content for the weekly sessions, but then also building the type of community that you want to foster.
1: Sure. So, this has been something, even when I was running Funk Volume, we were sharing what we were learning, right, in in different ways. Like sometimes we would just share it on social media. Um, But I also organized two Funk Volume virtual conferences uh, where I literally had a virtual conference where I would you know, put together certain panels. I think the first time there was this, this platform that I used to just do some consulting for called Yowie that we used. It was a video conferencing platform. Um, so I was always sharing what we were learning. Um, but then my passion was fueled even more so by our crash and burn because I feel like a lot of that miscommunication um, was because the artist that I was working with they weren't, he wasn't learning the business, right? He wasn't learning the business as at the pace that I was. So when we would have conversations, I'm approaching it from a business perspective. He's approaching it from like an ego and emotion, and it was just a clash. Um, So I, I think it's very important for artists and producers, anybody that wants to get the music industry to actually learn the business for two reasons. Obviously, the first one being so you can make the right decisions for yourself right? You don't want to get into a bad deal. You don't want to end up in a bad situation, but number two, you want to learn the business so that you can respect and value the people that you're going to need around you to help you, to help you support your career and, and, and have that foundation because, you know, again, part of the problem that I I think was had is like, when you don't know what everybody on your team is actually doing, you don't know how to to value them and and respect them. And you might start to think that everybody is just plug and play, right? I'm the artist. Everybody's here for me. If I wasn't here, none of you guys would have jobs and you can have that perspective, but people on your team play a crucial role. There's good and bad artists. There's good and bad managers. There's good and bad booking agents. And if you think everybody can just be replaced by anybody else, um, you can fire everybody and then just put anybody else in those roles, but I bet you the boat's not going to move the same way. Um, So I just think it's important for, I just think it's important for artists to really respect and value the people around them because they're going to need a team depending on how far they want to go. And these are the type of conversations that we have, like the music entrepreneur club, There is so much bad information out there. There's a lot of people talking out their ass. They don't really know what they're talking about. So I wanted to build a community where you know that people talking are established and actually do things in the music industry, actually have a career in the music industry. Um, So it's it's just a safe place to ask questions. I bring in established professionals every week, um, and we cover different topics from social media to publishing, legal stuff. Um, and I'm just trying to build a positive community where people can learn and get good information. That's, that's really it. And then the, you said the membership model, um, you know, it's, it's low cost. For me, it's, it's, it's only $13 a month. And for some people it seems like, wow, that, that, that still might be expensive for some people, but the people that we give access to are very established people. I mean, Obviously, I'm looking at it from a different perspective. But if I had something like this jumping into Funk Volume in 2008, like I literally would have played hundreds of dollars for it. Because a lot of our guests like really open themselves up, or give their email addresses, or you know, some of our members are working with our guests now. Uh, that's not what it's for. I don't tell our, I don't tell our, I don't tell our guests that they need to open their platforms up or you know start accepting emails from our members. But some of them do. Um, And it's valuable and they've been able to build relationships, you know, with some of our guests and with each other. I know the value of that. So, you know, for me and DJ Payne One, who is my partner in this, like we don't we don't make most of our money from the Music Entrepreneur Club. We make very little money from from the Music Entrepreneur Club. Um, But it's something that I feel like we have to charge for because it's starting to take up more and more of my time. And if it's going to take me away from my other stuff, I have to justify it by paying some type of bill. Um, But we always want to keep a low barrier to access what we do, because I just think that artists need to hear this information.
0: Right. And you're speaking to a specific type of person, a specific type of audience, and that makes it worthwhile and I know that anyone that creates content that puts a dollar amount on it, you will receive some some type of pushback. I get these same questions, too. But the thing is, there are much more expensive versions of this out there. And I think one of the good things that you're doing is, I mentioned this earlier, you're also bringing this to the areas that wouldn't necessarily get something like this.
1: Yeah, no, I mean... Uh you know i'm preaching to the choir when i'm talking to you because both you and i have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in our education so we understand the value of good information um you know there is a value on on good information and yeah you might be able to learn certain things piece things together on youtube and and instagram and things like that but if you really can't afford the 13 dollars a month i mean we have a facebook community that's free to join um, you know, join our, our, our Instagram page. We're always sharing information there. Um, and at some point, if you do think it's, it's worth your $13 a month, I mean, join our live sessions and, and check it out. Um, I think if you really tap into our live sessions, it's, it's, it's worth way more than $13 a month.
0: Right. One of the interesting things that you and I talked about is that you almost signed Russ when you were at funk volume I know a lot of people listening to this podcast probably have strong opinions about Russ. So tell us that story.
1: Yeah, Russ. I mean, I think Jaron Benton brought him to my attention like super early. So this was like maybe 13. And this is before he was even doing his one song a week, I believe. It was even before that. But to me, it was just and I don't consider myself like any super a and R. am not like a Russell or Diddy. I can spot talent, you know, right when I hear it. But with Russ, I did. And I've never felt, I've never felt more confident in an artist that he or she would do well than when I saw Russ. Like I heard Russ, just the consistency in which he was putting out like just dope melodies, dope songs. I was like, that's the type of artist we need on our team. Because the way I was looking at it, even though funk volume only existed uh, to a point, because we only had four artists signed to us. But my, in my mind, the longer term vision was like, okay, by the time we have ten artists, I don't care what subgenre of hip hop you like, there's somebody going to be on our on our team that you're a fan of if you say you're a fan of hip hop. So every time I brought somebody on, I was trying to increase our reach essentially, and I thought Russ would be the perfect person for that. I mean, obviously, he's white. Uh, good looking kid, long hair, um, but just makes really dope music and appealed a lot to to young women. Um, and we didn't really have any artists that did that. So we brought him out. We brought him out to a show. You know, he respected what we did, what we were doing. We brought him out to a show. And I think he was he was kind of interested at the time. But ultimately, he decided not to to join Funk Volume. Um, he He really didn't one thing he, he wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to do his own thing. And I, and he mentioned at one point, he just didn't feel like, like Hop's energy meshed with his. It didn't really see like, and it did kind of clash, but I wanted it to clash. You know, I didn't want it to clash. Every time I brought an artist on, I wanted it to upset some of our fans because me, because that would let me know that, that we're dipping into a new market. And I feel like at some point, you know, our fans would realize why we brought them on and would convert a lot of those initial people that were upset into fans. Cause Dizzy Wright did the same thing. A lot of people didn't like Dizzy when we brought him on, we thought he was a weed head and all this stuff. And then eventually, you know, people love what he was doing because at the end of the day, all these guys can really rap like Russ can really rap. Um, you know, he might be on some more melodic singing stuff, but if you throw him in a cipher, he could definitely hold his own. And that was that was gonna be the tie that binds everybody every artist at funk volume. Like if you had a big funk volume cipher, you know, everybody would be able to hold their own. So he circled back eventually, and he was like, dang, um, uh, he he didn't wasn't really interested in signing, but he wanted me to invest. And this is my biggest, my biggest mistake financially in my music career was that I that I said no. And it wasn't that I didn't believe in him or didn't want. Didn't want to do it. It was two reasons. One, I didn't invest because I didn't just want to throw mon- money blindly at a young cat. I didn't know what he was going to do with it.
0: What was he asking for? Did he give you specifics? No,
1: it wasn't. It wasn't even a specific number. Um, you know, I just, I just was like, no, I'm not just going to throw money at a at a young cat. I don't know what they're going to do with it. Um, but number two. And I didn't want to show my team that I wasn't being loyal. Like I was starting something else, right? This was funk volume. And it came back to bite me in the ass because, you know, Hot was willing to throw the label away because I said he didn't work that hard. I'm over here, like, not doing deals that I probably should have done because I wanted to didn't want to let my guys think that I was doing something completely different, right? Because I knew Russ was going to do well. I didn't think he'd do this well this fast, um, but I knew he was gonna do well. He's just a very talented cat. Right. But yeah, that Russ is definitely my biggest mistake financially, um, in terms of what I in in the music industry, in my music industry career.
0: You mentioned that when you first saw him, you knew that he was gonna blow up. You had that instinct. How much of that instinct had to do with his confidence? We all know that you can't tell Russ anything. Did his confidence help ensure your confidence in him?
1: He wasn't that confident then. I mean, he's been confident, but he he took his confidence to a whole nother level because now he's able to stun on cats and be in all these exotic places and these suites and traveling the world. Now he's really stunning on cats. He was confident, don't get me wrong, but it's definitely gotten to another level now that he has proved all of the people wrong that maybe weren't covering him on blogs early uh or maybe doubted him. So I think it's just skyrocketed. But to me it was just the consistency even early on. Just every time I clicked on a different YouTube video or a SoundCloud link, I was like, wow, like this is this is impressive. And he's doing this all himself. Like this is this is super impressive.
0: I think I said this to you also, but he's still the one person that when I was playing one of his interviews in my apartment. And I often play the hip-hop interviews in my apartment. My wife walks by. Normally, she'll just look and passively engage. But she's the one person she like walked and stopped and was like, Who the hell is that? And, you know, he has the long hair flowing and everything. I think it was either on Joe Budden or one of the Breakfast Club interviews. The only other person she said that about, I think, was Takashi 69 or someone like that. So it's interesting to hear how that confidence has progressed over time.
1: Yeah, he's got it, man. He's entitled to talking shit. Um, You know, me personally, like, I would tell him to tone it down. But that's part of his brand, and it's helped him. You know, so I, I guess I wouldn't tone it. I wouldn't tell him to tone it down from like a professional standpoint, but I, you know, I I'm sure that you know when you talk to him, he's a, he's a cool cat unless he's changed because I haven't talked to him since this time. Um, like he he's a cool cat. Like he's he's cool at the time. You know, he he talked a lot. He talked a lot, not necessarily about himself. But I think he was just excited because it was just at a point where people were starting to pay attention a little bit. Um, and fun volume, but we were doing our thing, so I think he was happy to to be flown out by us and, and opening up shows for us. Um, but he was a cool cat, man. I like I liked him a lot. You know, the only thing that the only the only critique I have of Russ now is just the advice that he gives his artists sometimes doesn't take into account like how talented he is and how how different he is, and not that nobody's like not that nobody's like him, but. Not everybody has that. His gift is something unique and special. And even if you don't like his music, um, and maybe people don't see it, maybe people don't don't see it the same way I do. But I think his gift is, is special and unique. You know, most of it is is his hard work. Um, but I think you know some of it is God given. And what he's what he's been able to do, I think he just has the perfect mix of of things. You know, his look obviously helps him a lot. Shout out to Russ, man.
0: Last couple questions before we let you go. What's one piece of advice that you often find yourself sharing with members of the Music Entrepreneur Club?
1: I think it's I think it's the confusion around like being able to come up with a compelling story. Like people don't understand like what that means. You know, when I say you need to have a compelling story, you know, a lot of people kind of just look at their history and they're like, well, I did, nothing crazy has happened to me. I haven't gotten shot. You know, I wasn't homeless and things like that, but it's, it, that's not necessarily, we're not talking about telling a, a linear story, right? It's, it's, it's talking about the things that you value, the things that you want associated with you, you know, what are your hobbies? What are your passions? You know, sharing your passion points with people. Um, you know, that, that's what it's about and, and communicating, all of this messaging through all your platforms, right? It's obviously it's through your music, obviously through, through social media, uh, but it's even through your merchandise. It's even through your shows. Do you have a consistent, compelling story and messaging throughout all of the platforms um, that you have access to? One The young lady that we just had on, Sherelle Jeffrey, um, she runs a music marketing agency for artists and she told artists, like, look, look at your social media like a reality show. Right. Um, and because you have to keep people engaged. But what story are you telling through your reality show? You know, are, are you um, you know, are you a vegan? Can you tap into that community authentically? Um, is that part of your story that you share with people? that's the big piece. And then the other piece is just the content. I feel like most artists just are not there yet with the quality of music that that they should have. Um, And that's not something I can help you with. Um, If you don't have like good quality music to start with, you know, all the stuff that we layer on top of it to help it get out there, it's not going to work.
0: All right. Before we let you go, is there anything that you'd like to plug or that the audience should know about?
1: Um, we always got a lot of stuff going on so i don't i don't know if it's okay to plug our own podcast on your no, podcast no please do
0: please do let them know
1: but we have the MEC podcast that drops every monday uh, we have our live sessions every Monday and Tuesday. Monday nights is with me and it's for everybody. So artists, producers, managers, we cover a bunch of different topics. And Tuesday nights, DJ Payne One, He heads up our B club, which is producer specific. So it's always like collab sessions and topics related to producers. Um, and then we'll continue the MEC tour next year. It's something that we're going to continue to do. There's always more cities to hit, but that's our pop-up conference um, we're going to try to hit the Midwest and Texas and Northwest uh, because we didn't hit those cities this time this year. Uh, so we'll keep that rocking. Um, and other than that, I think I think that's it.
0: All right, great, Dame. It's been a pleasure. We may have to bring you back if Kanye tries some more bullshit though.
1: <laughs> I'm down. I'm down.
0: If you've enjoyed this Trapital podcast, I have two requests for you. One please tell a friend and spread the word. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. So whether that's you sharing this directly to a friend, you can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast as well to have it continue to boost in the rankings. All that stuff helps. So please spread the word. And secondly, go to the trapital.co website. There is a bunch of great content there. I actually wrote an article about this Kanye Sunday service. So check that out. It's a great companion to this podcast. And last but not least, have a bonus for you all. I am dropping another episode of the podcast this week. Yes, two in the same week. I got to make up. I didn't drop one last week, but you'll have two coming this week. So stay tuned for that.